0: Welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. This podcast is for you if you have an insane drive to find the truth of things. It's not the good answers that we seek but the good questions. I interview a range of different guests from many different fields all with the intention to uncover the simple truths that are hidden in plain sight. Most people don't want to go there. I go there. My guests go there and you benefit. Please let me know if you enjoy these episodes and, as always, subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to the podcasts. Welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. My guest today is Tim Wood Powell. He is an innovator, catalyst, author, speaker. Let's make our knowledge work uh, and in the field of knowledge management. And uh, that's why I'm bringing him on the show because I have so many questions about knowledge management because I started as a director of knowledge management about three months ago. And before that, I had actually never heard of the term. Um, and uh, immediately, once I heard the term, I was like, "Oh, wait, that's what I do." Uh, so, wel- welcome to the show, Tim.
1: It's great to be here, and it's great to meet you.
0: Yeah. Uh, so, what is knowledge?
1: Well, that's a uh, it's a it's a question that I started having when I was in business school. Uh, my professor Sid Winter uh, said just offhandedly one day in a class, he he, the only economics course I ever took at Yale. And he said, uh, you know, companies compete on their knowledge. And I came up to him after the class and I said, what did you say? You know, and tell me more about that. And he said, well, you know, he opened this whole window of uh, knowledge. So knowledge is, I mean, I've got various definitions. I could bore you for hours. We could talk about that. But in a nutshell, it's... um, First of all, it's an intangible asset. It's something that has no weight, or uh, and the value of knowledge, which is the name of my latest book um, pitch, is uh, is is my sort of my business school take on what is knowledge. Knowledge is a complex topic. I'm not the first person to tackle this question. Uh, the first person, first economist, to tackle this question is Fritz Machlup, uh, who in 1962 wrote a book called The Production Distribution of Knowledge in the United States having come as i mentioned in our pre warm up uh from from the music business where i briefly was in which i briefly was in as a dj and then as a musician and then did some recording uh, with a major label briefly um before going to business school i had a familiarity with intellectual property and i actually had a copyright dispute over a song i wrote about a copyright dispute so i got very interested in intellectual property and that led me then into knowledge and what is knowledge and how does knowledge benefit us so if anything i think i have a business school take on knowledge i mean at yale i studied psychology and philosophy it was a new major they just had a combined major they put together so indirectly they didn't have anything called knowledge management in those days and they didn't really address it forthrightly. but psychology and philosophy was kind of the beginnings of a program they had created then and it's still going now so it's a it's kind of it's it's a kind of it's a question that goes back to Socrates. Socrates was the first guy that said, "What is knowledge?" And in my book, I trace back, you know, when he first asked that question and what became of that. So basically, it's a it's a question of philosophy. Also, all philosophy, all good philosophy, to me, is answering that question or asking that question. I just do it in the context of business and and economics.
0: Well, you said that knowledge is intangible, and this is something I've been trying to think through a lot in my current company, because we're trying to measure a lot of things and all other businesses are all trying to measure a lot of things. And like Mm -hmm. intangibles, to me, seem like they're not necessarily very open to measurement. So if something's intangible like this, and there's such an emphasis in business in order to measure things and prove ROI, then you know, where does knowledge fit into it? Cause it's so abstract and it's such a like a such a just like a, a meta question. How yeah. how does this even fit into a business context?
1: Yeah, it's a very good question. I mean, that is the question that a lot of these conversations sort of boil down to that. Um, in an era when, you know, when I was in business school, and that was a long time ago, but we were the beginning, I think the beginnings of saying, let's do everything empirically, let's do everything with data. And by the way, this is before we had spreadsheets. I mean, we had spreadsheets that were like big yellow pieces of paper. So it was the dark ages in terms of technology, but still we wanted to be uh, empirical and uh, evidence driven and that kind of stuff that we still have now. I think the problem, the the conundrum, the um, paradox, the uh, catch 22 is when you get more in, and I've thought a lot and read a lot as much as I can about metrics and how they came to be, but metrics, as you probably know, you know, start as something you want to measure performance so you can do better. Mm-hmm. And or you can perform perform better than your peers, better than your former self or better than your peers. So that's all a good reason. But metrics quickly become targets. And, okay, here's the metric. Okay, let's meet that this time. except plus, t- plus 10% or plus 20% or let's cut that cost by 10% or whatever. Metrics quickly become targets. And so they have, you know, in companies, they have real meaning. I mean, people are measured. Even the CEOs are measured. I mean, they're especially measured on stuff like stock price and stuff like that. They're measured on metrics. And um, companies, all companies of all sizes run, literally run on numbers and metrics. And more and more in our own businesses uh, and our own lives, I should say, you know, we run on numbers. We're kind of a numbers-driven society. But it's a catch-22 because, as you said before... It's hard to measure, especially when it comes to intangibles. My latest work, uh, and I didn't invent this idea. There's a guy at NYU who um, <clears throat> who came up with the idea that the accounting systems that we have were designed in the last century, and they're kind of for last century kind of mm. companies and, and entities. And what the accounting systems do um, is measure very closely and very carefully. And there's a whole industry that I was involved in for a while, the big accounting firms measure tangible assets down to a penny worth. but they don't measure intangibles. They literally do not measure intangibles. And um, it's a matter of some controversy in the accounting industry, but they've never really tackled it. They do it sort of in a roundabout way without taking you too much in the weeds. but as which is fine in 1933 when they created the accounting systems we have now, but almost 30 almost almost a century later, Our economy, and I'm talking about the world's economy, the way just the way we operate has moved away from the industrial age, the steam age, you know, from things into intangibles and intangibles are increasingly of increasing value to companies, except that they don't appear on the balance sheet. I do this test all the time to make sure I'm still right, but um what is seen as great value for example i, I haven't done the test yet on bed bath beyond but it just came through the other day bed bath beyond sold their intellectual property for i think it was billions of dollars it was a lot of money um with no revenues to the company i mean the company is basically bust right now but their intellectual property the brand the urls the trade dress the um you know their their reputation is worth a great value to somebody but it doesn't appear i'm going to Wager I haven't done the test yet on them, but I'm okay. going to wager it doesn't appear on their balance sheet. I, I did. I worked for a long time for Philip Morris, um, who was uh, had a 50% share of a very successful market called cigarettes at that time. And the word brand, the concept of brand became much more important as I worked for them over 12 years. I realized that mm. how do you take a just a little sort of thing that grows in the ground and you dry it out and you do what and all of a sudden it's worth all this money. Well, a lot of that is brand, branding management, which I kind of thought was bullshit, along with my other MBA friends, brand equity and stuff, it always just seemed like kind of nonsense to me and my accounting friends. For 10 years, I was with these people. It's not bullshit. It's really, really important. But you see the words brand appears in Philip Morris's latest annual report 75 times. The word appears in the text, but on the balance sheet, it doesn't appear. It's very very invisible. So it's both very valuable and very invisible. This is a paradox that I'm trying to solve. I try to write this book about it, and it's probably over to younger guys. Guys like me will like go to the grave saying, what the hell? Guys like you will have to figure that out. It's almost like you back into the question of, well, what really do these systems measure anyway? These, These accounting systems kind of measure the cost, mostly measure the cost, historical cost minus depreciation. And, or they might measure the replacement value of an asset, which makes sense for a machine or a factory or something. But intellectual assets, as you know, the the question really is what's their future earning power? Uh, me What's the future? It's not about the past. The accounting systems are really past driven, past focused. And um, I mean, I spent a lot of time in competitive intelligence, a long time with Philip Morris and some other companies, pharmaceutical companies. And we were always saying, well, other disciplines look at the past and they look inside the, the the enterprise. We look outside the enterprise and we look at the future. Those are our, that was our big mantra of things. And accounting doesn't really work that way, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. So absent, so what happens is companies sort of invent their own metrics. And what I've encouraged my clients to do, and what I've done, to, is you kind of have to go around the end run around the, the 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 system, the accounting systems. The problem is, in many of the companies I've worked for, and I don't know if you've experienced this too, many of the people have, you know, financial training or they have that bias and they kind of, you know, they kind of get what you say, brand equity, but they kind of really don't think, well, it's kind of nice stuff, but it's really not that important. Yeah. Yeah. And it's really kind of, I mean, in the back of their mind, they never tell you this, but it's kind of, it's kind of just a bullshitty thing, you know, We're kind of it's kind of fun and it's kind of fizzy. So we do it for a while. What happened i'm old enough now and my business is old enough to have been through a f- oh i started the business in a very frothy time 1996 when the conference board which i later became associated with but it's, it put out a report about 27 percent of the fortune 500 have a chief knowledge officer and it's going to be the biggest thing since yeah. rock and roll so i thought well i'm going to get on the ground floor of this all i need is computer and an internet and i'll start my own company which i did five years later in two, well four years later 2000 2001 there was a, a recession pretty severe recession the, the um tech bust
0: yeah
1: uh, where pets.com and all these other you know startup companies went bust Webvan. oh um, yeah right it was there were a bunch of webvan, yeah there were a bunch of them and my my proposals started getting delayed and then my Ooh. proposals started getting canceled and then my people started getting like asked to find other jobs and then whole departments were let go And then the same exact thing happened in 2008, Uh, including my own business, had some problems with uh, major clients. And uh, so um, what I found out that is that the business cycle goes up and down. That's why they call it a cycle. Uh, It goes up and down. And during a good times, knowledge management and other things like that that are kind of interesting and around the edges thrive. And in a downturn, they kind of look around and say, well, what is this stuff? You know, the accountants say, what is this stuff really? And then they, it's very tough. So I, I kind of, at one point I said to myself, I have an MBA training and I have this background in science and knowledge and all that stuff. What can I do to save somebody's life? It's like, here's a lifeline to somebody out there. Read this book now, because you may need it. It's like, when you get on the airplane and they say, "Here's the uh, here's the mask, here's how it works," and nobody really listens, but sometimes I do because I think, "Geez, where's the exit row?" You know, because when you need that information, it's going to be too late. So this book I kind of wrote in advance. Here's a lifeline. Read it now, so you won't need it.
0: And what's the name of the book again?
1: Uh, it's called "The Value of Knowledge."
0: The value <clears throat> of knowledge. Okay.
1: It's an expensive book. It's a textbook. So unfortunately, textbook providers. Charge poor students who can least afford it through the nose. It's like 120 bucks. Uh-huh. I'm gonna. I'm promising to make, and I will reiterate that promise in in your presence to make some videos. I've got a couple out there to explain it in everyday terminology. It's written in a very formal mm-hmm. uh, way, and um, but it's and it but it's gotten a very good reception, and it's getting more and more reception. I'm just sending it this morning to a, another academic group that's interested in it. <clears throat> uh cool. in the in, in the intelligence field yes yeah, so but um anyway i blather, I, I digress and, and go on i forget what your question was <laughs>
0: well so there's a lot there's a lot of questions i got from there because we there's and i've been taking notes here because so we have the accounting systems the accounting systems were built in 1930s they kind of take Into account basically all of the machines, all of these things that you really had to do. There wasn't too much intangible stuff back then uh, because you're building factories, you you got like a Ford, you know, it's just like, uh, it's all tangible. It's all like, how do you separate this into different processes and stuff? Uh, And then now we're in an age of knowledge work, uh, particularly the 1960s, 1970s, and on till today. And now with computers, it's all like, it's all about how strange, how like, how divergent. Uh, a lot of our brains work and how, you know, we can make connections between various things. All the tangible things seem to have already kind of that's been created already, but then In the good times, people start to ask these questions, and it reminds me of kind of similar trends in the past throughout history. Of that, uh, usually philosophy is left for time golden ages because the golden ages are the times where people have to stop, don't have to think about feeding themselves as much anymore, so they can start to ask more abstract questions and things like that. And so it also happens in the business that business, and I I have we have a very interesting business. I I work for a company called Invisible Technologies. Invisible Technologies, the CEO is like highly, highly. Uh, studied in the classics, um, and there's a, like a really huge emphasis to understand philosophy in the business because there's a clear understanding at that high level that philosophy is very important for business, even though it's intangible. Mm-hmm. Um, and but even with that, we still have a lot of like a lot of trying to measure things, and and so we're constantly trying to measure. And so a lot of the the finance people m- may soon start to ask those questions uh, as well about like, well, how do we actually justify this? Uh, and it's such an interesting problem because ha- there, there's so much serendipity that goes into business. There's so much like just crazy things that happen that are really hard to be, be like, okay, well, that's the thing. That's the thing, the reason. And the, the key point that you mentioned, which is really interesting, is that the intangibles are about the future state. Um, and science is all about prediction. You know, they They develop theories that are predictive. And if they don't predict, then they're not necessarily science or they're just poor science. Um, but nobody, you know, we can predict in these little tiny specialties, but we can't really predict where a business is going to be in five years. We can plan for it and stuff like that. And so that I, I love this idea that the intangible state is like future value. I've been reading this great book called, um, the price of time, uh, by chancellor, all about interest and how interest is basically a way to price time. And yesterday I was, I, I it was actually the second time I'm reading it. They were talking about how. Uh, let's see if I can, it was so hard to understand what they were saying, the time value of money. Um, mm-hmm. We have the, you know, we have, I'm, you know, I, I've got a house in California. Uh, I'm renting that house out. Uh, and there's the time value of of money. So like interest, I'm, I'm going to destroy this. There's no way I'm going to be able to explain it, but it's something about like that. Uh, no, I can't do it. So, uh, but it, it, like, it's it goes into the future like we have to think about these things yeah just like disc- discounting the future that's what it is it's yeah yeah Discounting the future well, because, yeah go for it
1: yes uh sorry but to interrupt but that is in my book the time value of money is in my book the time value of knowledge you know um it's it, what i do basically what i do and i just hit on this for a talk i'm doing right now in a nutshell i think i'm the only person doing this but what i'm doing is taking business concepts that are really bread and butter business concepts Time value of money is one of those and applying those to knowledge. So how does that, that I learned in finance class, Ron Webber at Yale School of Management, time value of money, which seemed very difficult for me at first. And it's it's very simple for me now, only because I was drilling it for two years. It gets very simple. After a while, it's so simple. You can't believe you didn't understand. It's one of those things, but, it, but it's not at first. I, I quite agree. But what it basically says uh, in, a, in, a, in layman's terms is, a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush like the the uncertainties of life are such that of all kinds of life financial life included but as a subset of real life but right now the discount for right for right now in in value terms is zero the discount in the future is some number because it's uncertain pr- primarily um and that kind of thinking it actually led me in i have a section in the book where I talk about what's the purpose, what are we doing here? What's the business purpose of what we're doing here? And I, over the years, writing proposals and doing that, I've sort of wrestled with that question many, many times. And the one that I'm most happy with right now is the issue of risk. Just the Mm -hmm. thing that you mentioned, by the way, I've noted that book because I don't know that book and I follow this stuff. So I'll I'll definitely check it out. But businesses or enterprise, I use the word enterprise because it applies to NGOs and nonprofits where I got my start government agencies where I had a lot of experience too. So, and business, business was just something I did after I did nonprofit work for about six years and realized I was falling behind in my career. So, uh, so to speak, as far as business was concerned, but anyway, I've done all different sectors. So I use the word enterprise. And when I went to China, I used enterprise Mm -hmm. to mean include business and, um, and and nonprofits, but value um, is, uh, is, is di- very dynamic. I've got a section in the book called f- Value Dynamics, and that's another concept I'm really focusing on. Is value changes constantly. The value of an asset, let's say if just a hard financial asset, the accountants would like it changes in value. I mean, you're looking right now at bonds and people's in these banks portfolios, and when interest rates up, the value of the bond went down. And <coughs> excuse me, they didn't have pricing mark to market anyway the weeds the accounting weeds are terrible but in a nutshell value is dynamic value is always changing the value of a given asset or a given business idea can change hourly even and and so and but companies or organizations enterprises have to make bets about the future about this uncertain change in in the in the environment the environment's changing constantly and business people know this i've talked to business people who can who operate this way, even though they may not be able to articulate the Mm -hmm. concepts, but they're having to guess really about how many people should we hire to do what jobs, Mm -hmm. what investments should we make into the future when nobody really knows the future. So the, the future is, is very uncertain. And in the competitive intelligence field, we talk about threats and opportunities. You have uncertainty is a big thing. And then uncertainties that are negative say are threats and uncertainties that are positive, we call opportunities. And then there's another part that I deal with in my book called risk, which is when you take an uncertainty and you try to put some parameters around it. If, if uh, say, insurance companies with regard to life insurance, it's an industry that's now about 400 years old, I think. Uh, and some Scottish guys were sitting around one day, and they said, "Hey, we could we could we could create that." And they created this industry based on uncertainties in the future. But the way they did it was to create actuarial tables. So although you know you and me, nobody knows exactly when you are going to die or when I'm going to die or get sick. But the actuaries can say, "Well, Tim is X years old, and he's X." You know, medical conditions and so forth and so on. So we think we're going to bet we're going to lay money that he will live to X time to Y time. And so they have figured out a way and created a whole industry around risk and how to manage risk, turning uncertainty in, into risk. I think that knowledge, the greatest opportunity for knowledge, the greatest payback for knowledge is in, in that is in buffering the environment. The environmental uncertainties that we all face—I mean, if that wasn't clear during the last three years, when we had these huge buffets, every every organization did because of the pandemic, and then because of uh, Black Lives Matter, and you know the, the fallout from that, the ESG thing, which I'm following for the Conference Board, is still going back and forth. There's like an ESG culture war going on. All these things happening in organizations, back and forth, and that will always be the case. I think companies and organizations, and you know, households and people. Are dealing in a world of uncertainty that is just all too clear and it's not going away. It's not like we're going to go into a golden age where everything is calm and peaceful. It's just not going to happen. And so 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 knowledge in effect to me, um, what what does it taste the complexity of the world? Everything that I've done, I've done market research, competitive intelligence and knowledge management, all those things have the function ultimately of taking the big, complex, fast-moving world and then boiling it down to if you will, a simulacrum, a model, mm-hmm. uh, cre- creating a mental model for your for your management, say, to make decisions, mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm all about human centric. I mean, I think everything ultimately comes back to human decision making. It's just the way I was trained, and it's the way I've been challenged, and I've been, you know, challenged myself to think. Was there is there a con- concept of knowledge or information or intelligence? It doesn't involve human decision-making. And and my answer is no. And people say, well, well, what about technology? Where's technology in your book? I said, you know what? I wrote a book on technology about 20 years ago, probably in the influence of your dad, as a matter of fact. And people like that. I wrote a book called The High-Tech Marketing Machine. It was about using a revolutionary idea, this new idea of we could use technology for marketing, which is something I was doing at PwC. It was a brand new idea because it was before the internet. And, um, but uh, so anyway, so that book was all about, I mean, I have a copy here somewhere. It's so far out of date. It's crazy because I talked about this technology, that technology, and it was just too close to the ground as far as technology. And and two years later, the internet came out and I called my editors and say, the book is completely, it needs a new chapter. It needs to be rewritten. It's completely obsolete. Uh. And they said, well, you know, we've got new management and they'd been sold to a larger company. Dow Jones had bought them. And They said, well, nah, you're fine. We'll just ride with it. So the book that I wrote on technology was so obsolete after a while. So I vowed I would never make that mistake again. So I barely mentioned technology in this book at all. But when I talk about intelligence and decision making, you know, it's clear that a lot of decision making is now algorithmic. And it's been mm-hmm. for a while. It's not just yeah. chat GPT. It's a yeah. high, tr- high speed trading has been going this way for, you know, 10 years. Um, and so it's not really new and, and, it's, and it's really there, but somewhere in the algorithmic trading, somebody makes a decision mm-hmm. that's put into a, an algorithmic rule. I mean, I, uh, I keep pretty close to this. My son's a software engineer, a pretty serious software engineer. So he keeps me up to date when I'm sort of lacking in my current knowledge, but it's all human yeah. engineering. It's, it's, you know, these technologies are made by people for people and they are subject to the whims and uncertainties that people are too it's just sometimes they're baked in so deep that you can't see that and i think that's a danger frankly is
0: oh yeah absolutely you know, well and yeah. it is, we're seeing it right now cuz you know the the you talked about the first wave of of the internet with the browser and then the second wave, well, maybe third wave or fourth wave, uh, with Facebook, Uber, Airbnb, all of these companies, basically what they specialized in doing was taking the human out of the loop uh, and creating a whole bunch of algorithms. Uber is the best example where instead of having a management kind of structure where you have your taxis that are all ma- managed by a company that goes and sends them out, instead of having that structure, then the algorithm is basically making sure that the decision to manage the the uber driver is actually coming from the customer themselves who gives the rating and stuff like that and and mm-hmm. so it like it takes a whole bunch of administration out of it uh facebook has the same thing you know that that was a huge problem the last few a few years is that facebook basically specialized in taking the human out of the decision making for what type of content uh is published and edited uh and then you start having people just upload all sorts of crazy content and stuff like that, and Facebook had to change their whole structure in order to try to solve this massive problem that had had only arisen because of their initial business model proposition.
1: Yeah, I think you lose um, sight when people lose sight of business value, and businesses. In spite of business, businesses own attempts to make it seem abstract with brands and stuff like that, they're people, you know, yeah. and that's when I, that helped me a lot when I was writing proposals, you know, people write proposals for businesses, B2B and all that nonsense. It's really just people. B2B is just people. They're people making decisions of companies. When I got to the top of very large companies and I saw, you know, who's running this, who's driving this boat? It's a few people, you know, the senior leadership team would be a few people and knowing those people and how knowing how they operate was kind of key to doing business with them at a high level so all the abstractions notwithstanding, and i have met this debate with my son all the time i'm sort of very um i don't think self-driving cars are are a very good idea and he thinks they're a great idea but dad you know suppose took all the in the crazy people that are doing nutty stuff and took that all out and that's a vision i think it's very appealing like i said i came through data when data was just basically stone age stuff but i was all in favor of Instead of making business decisions by the seat of our pants and just gut feel, let's do things empirically. Let's look at data. I was trained in science. For two years, I was pre-medical science. Mm. And I really like that way of thinking. And I think that's the right way to go. And science has worked for us for 400 years. It Mm. did miracles. So let's run businesses like that too. But the problem is that I think what you uh, alluded to earlier in our conversation is When you get a piece of data about something, it's nice to assume that's representative of what the thing itself is. However, data, in my view, is a very thin slice—a very thin slice mm-hmm. of what actually is. Um, if you represent, I mean, medical science has done a pretty good job over the last 400 years. If you go to the doctor and they takes a lot of tests, he or she takes a lot of tests and says, "Well, you, you know, you here's what you look like. Here are all your numbers. All your numbers look good," but. I'm old enough to have some hands-on experience with medical care and sometimes they just don't know. It just yeah. it's a start, but it's not the, the finish. And I think people make a mistake when they assume that no, that knowledge slash information slash metrics are the thing in itself. They're not. They're a small representation of a yeah. thing. And and you know.
0: It's a great point about the about doctors specifically because I've had to I've I've uh, wor- had a medical issue where I've had to work with doctors for the past ten years or so, uh, mm-hmm. and it's kind of one of those mysterious ones that they can't really figure out. And so I've had to and I've had a lot of doctors kind of create medical errors that I've had to th- then go back and fix and like figure out what's going on. And so like I've had to go deeply into what uh, medical science does. And from my understanding, they basically take all that data. Uh, and then they create that helps their intuition. So it still is sort mm-hmm. of like a, a, it's still a, 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 uh, it's still very much a decision made by a, a incomplete, un, uh, not, uh, un, not perfect human being who's doing the mm-hmm. best that they can. Uh, based on the intuition that they've built over over many years. Um, but it's definitely like, you know, the science part of medical science is different than the actual clinical part of medical science, because then you're dealing with one individual who is unique with their, their characteristics and like outside of the, as you said, with the data actuaries, it's like, we can't really predict when we're going to die. Uh, but based on our all of these different factors, we can kind of narrow it down a bit. Um and uh, and well, narrow it down quite a bit, but but still we, we're like it's still really, really difficult to get into the fine details of what's going on, basically.
1: Absolutely. And the other thing to riff on your your statement is uh, I had some experience, but my sister's had more experience with medical stuff. And it sounded like they were kind of she had some recurring problems she had, had a mm-hmm. back surgery, complicated back surgery. And it sounded like with some of her medications, they were kind of experimenting on her. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, and at first I re- reacted against that. I thought that's terrible. You know, they should know the answer. And then I realized just what you said, they, they're kind of, they kind of are experimenting. They would never say that, yeah, but they're are, making huh? their best judgment uh, based on all the knowledge they have in from school and from current reading and from talking to their peers and so forth. They're making the best judgment they can, but when stuff doesn't work, they do something else. And, they they're they're open to new to new data and what what originally i mean what 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 I come this this ties back to knowledge and my mm-hmm. view of the value of knowledge ultimately comes back to just exactly that it's whatever works whatever has the result that gets the result the business result or enterprise result that you want that's what has value and nothing short of that without enterprise results and enterprise value I use that term enterprise value it's sort of a technical term, but what it means is creating user satisfaction or, uh, you know, some benefit to the business. That's the test of value, and that's the only test of value. And so that it's what works. It's I'm very, very pragmatic in that sense. Knowledge to me is until the point where it creates value or results. I use the term ROI in a sort of joking way. It created this... <clears throat> results out outcomes and, and impact results outcomes and impact roi means of course r- return on investment but results outputs and, and impact until you create that knowledge and inf- even information is is a cost
0: yeah interesting when
1: you create that it's then it's a benefit and benefit to me is a function of cost and cost and, and benefit uh, value is a function of cost and benefit so but until you produce benefit um it's just a cost, and, that, and that's the problem. When you we, when you get caught in an organization, a lot of these companies, a lot of these individuals get caught on the cost end of the equation, not delivering the value end of the equation or not really understanding the value. I mean, another thing I discovered earlier on, I created this thing called The Knowledge Value Chain, which is another book I wrote earlier to that. <clears throat> And in which I realized is I self published this book, which, uh, for Columbia University, they, they wanted a textbook. So they wanted a hard copy book. I said, you know, PDF. Okay. They said, no, you got to publish hard copy. <laughs> so what I did is I took the data information knowledge meme that you hear a lot and I put on top of it. What I learned in business school is decisions, actions and value. And, and uh, and I just put those, smoosh those two parts together. What I found over time is the people that create the knowledge piece, and in, in organizations I've worked with, many organizations, and this is t- is typical. And the value creating people are different people, and they're trained differently. the The knowledge people tend to have library degrees or more technical information degrees, mm-hmm. and the deciding people have MBAs, yeah, and uh, and and that kind of thing. And they they have a whole different. Pay structure and pay grade, and the two sides of the equation don't really understand each other. In fact, they view each other skeptically at sometimes. And the 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 office suite says, "What do these people really do?" And the the knowledge people say, "You know, we're smarter than these people running the company. We could do it better than they could." And I've heard this conversation. And of course, you know, so I be I came into the field um, by trying to create new business business design. What we call now business design for PwC. They said, "Okay." you're so smart, Tim, create some new businesses for us. We want to make more money. Okay, great. How do I do that? I ran to their library and I started sucking in information and I started sucking so much information in that I re- that I kind of got enamored of that whole process. And the next company I went to work for was called Find SVP. It was basically, it was kind of like Google before Google existed, before the internet. It was finding information for people for business value. I mean, that that seemed very important, but very few people have crossed that divide. Knowledge people are here. Decision people are here. And and when you're at Harvard Business School, or I studied at Yale, we studied with Harvard cases, you get this thing thrown on your desk as a student, like, here's a case, it's 30 pages long, you know, by tomorrow, you have to have the answers. So the information piece and the knowledge piece is just sort of a token assumed thing. Here's the case, just read it. Mm -hmm. So your big Mm -hmm. value creation is making the decisions and creating, figuring out what to do. Well, that's true. But, you know, assuming you have good information or the right information and, and so both sides lose, I think, by not understanding the other side. So I encourage my knowledge friends to understand the management piece and vice versa, you know?
0: So this brings up a few questions. I, I would really love to ask you what what it is that over your experience, what it is that you think that knowledge management Professionals actually do like what they're. What is the ideal uh, ideals of the position? What are the things that people think they're going to do, and what are the things that actually people actually do? But there's another question that you brought up about finding information in an organization, and it's a huge problem for us right now about how to actually like find the. So uh, uh, the the so the fact that Google has basically habituated all of us to finding the information that we want immediately because everything's open on the internet or everything was open on the internet. It's kind of changing now, but um, but. So Google's habituated, but then we get inside of an organization and all of a sudden there is no Google search because the organization is by default um, sensitive. So uh, so like we've actually got to protect things. And so you can't actually find the things that you're looking for. And I'm realizing this isn't just a problem at my specific company, but every company out there basically doesn't have very good, and there's a lot of technology tools that are coming out. None of them are working very well. Um, but uh, uh, I guess like we could give it a, a, an option to you, which one you want to talk about, like in terms of knowledge management or workers and what they actually do. Um, yeah, I'll start find. with
1: that one and I'll get into the other ones, too, if we have time. Uh, they're very interesting questions, really, though. They're all good. There's a current conversation. I don't know if you follow. There's a group that I follow, uh, an email group called SIKM mm-hmm. that you may want to follow. I can send you the link after yes, this. Sir, I love it. Uh, and there's a current discussion. Somebody asked the innocent question, well, how much do KM people make? Uh, Simple question. And it's, then the, the answers came in. Well, it's a range. And, you know, it's this. And then somebody said very wisely, I think it was over the weekend, the descriptions are all different. And I as I, I, I sort of pride myself in being an outsider trying to help the KM field. But I say, you know, and I looked, I have a couple of very authoritative books I'm on my desk, and I say they really fail to define what knowledge is. Knowledge management is uh, a study that I cite in my book. Finds 100, and, I think it was 130 different technologies that self-describe as knowledge management. So it's really kind of self-described. It has no um, meaning, core meaning, and it means different things to different people. So people they used to have the job I had, where we call it. I still they call it strategic research when I was there. Some people call that knowledge management. Some people are more like librarians, uh, and it, it's really all over the map, which is which is unfortunate. Mm. I have taken on the role, and I've been, able, been fortunate to cross paths with Larry Prusak at Columbia. His work influenced my own, and then I became part of that program where he was a part, and he said to everybody, but I took it to heart, like, nobody likes this term knowledge management. We agree it's not really – we're not managing knowledge. <laughs> I took that really to heart, and I said, okay, I'm going to have a shot at this. And recently, about a year ago, as a matter of fact, because it's coming up the next, or maybe it's two years ago, but during the Knowledge Management Convention, there's a big uh-huh. convention in DC, uh, KM World, which I, I don't know if you're I aware of that, of yep. able to go. But anyway, it's, I'm going to speak at that again this year. But I said, okay, let's. what do we really do? What's with the core of what we really do? I think, this is my opinion, I'm trying to sell people on this idea or make people aware it's not knowledge management per se it's knowledge resources management and what i've observed a lot in my columbia work is it's knowledge resources it's the enablement or empowerment of knowledge I, i believe firmly uh along with peter drucker from 1964 that knowledge is human it's all tacit knowledge the distinction between tacit knowledge and implicit knowledge which you'll see referred to a lot is just not the way it works. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's not even the way Polanyi Polanyi said it worked. So if you go back and study Polanyi, he didn't really say what people say he said, but he talked a lot about tacit knowledge. He didn't really mention the term explicit knowledge Uh. because there is no such thing. It's all knowledge is all here. Information, as I'm speaking to you, as your listeners may hear my words later on or read my book or whatever it is, that's information and that's a distillation maybe but it's a misrepresentation in a lot of ways. It's a distortion. There's subtle distortions that come in. If you study Shannon's communication theory. It's all, all in the book. But there's little distortions that come in. It's not quite representative. But um, so um, what most people hmm. say, most people in the knowledge management field that I've found uh, are really managing information,
0: hmm.
1: not knowledge per hmm. se. Yes. And uh, yeah. And, and that that when i real there's a whole section in my book about the differences between those but i think that for me it cleared up a lot of personal questions so i thought well when they say knowledge what they're really talking about is information which is you might call those knowledge resources or sometimes what i call para knowledge it's not quite knowledge but it's right next to knowledge in my in my hierarchy information comes right below knowledge so the way we get knowledge in our society is largely through information and um I mean, even, you know, that there are oral cultures in, out there in the, somewhere that, that don't really like Native American Indians, never really developed written literature, but they had an oral culture. So there are oral cultures, but even so, that's information. They're transmitting information. So ultimately, information is the support. It's kind of like the method of transmission. It's kind of like... I don't know. I've used all kinds of analogies, but it's the pipeline. Information is the pipeline through which we transmit knowledge mm-hmm. or, it enables us to get knowledge, but, but so we can manage those resources. And I think that that itself is, is a big enough job for knowledge management people. I think that is a big job because one client I went to recently through a Columbia project. And as you, as you alluded to, they had, they had technologies for sharing information internally which is the good news. The bad news is each group had its own pet um, technology and we found 12 or 13 different technologies being used.
0: Yeah. And so
1: what, yeah. And they were all basically doing the same kind of thing. So everybody, it was kind of DIY. The, the other big problem enterprises have now is the DIY. It started with people bring, bringing their own phones to work, yep. yep. bringing your own device. You know, now it's bringing your own technology. Every group has their own technology. Yep. So what we did in that project is bring that to the attention of somebody. And, and it's really, I hate to use the G word because everybody hates that word too, but the governance word, you know, I hate that word. I'd like to invent my next job is invent a new word for governance because everybody hates that word. Don't tell me what to do. You know, I'm going to be entrepreneurial. Okay, yep. that's fine. But... We would all benefit if we all did, you know, what either had a central standard or did, you know, knowledge of things. I'm old enough to remember, and this is probably where your father's work helped me as well. I'm old enough to remember when I was at PwC, the predecessor firm called Coopers and Librand, where I had to fight to use Microsoft Word because the whole firm was using a program called WordStar for word processing. 95% of the Firm used WordStar, and that was the big deal. The accounting partners used it. And I said, "Well, I think Microsoft Word 1.0 is better, and I want to use that." And so I finally stuck to my guns. Years later, maybe you know I was vindicated. But you know, um, we didn't even have compatible word processors in those days. But you know, it's 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 a problem that gets worse and worse and worse as technologies, which I'm all in favor of technologies. I use them every time I can. But when you have an organization using different ones. It becomes like the Tower of Babel. You know, you have to get some kind of co- consistent use. I think
0: <clears> There's <throat> a huge problem, and related to my second question too, as well. But uh, I want to go into this because it's such a huge thing that we're working on right now. It's just because we also we have a very entrepreneurial co- uh, culture. We have a very decentralized culture. Uh, there are a lot of benefits to that because decision making is really down to the lowest level. Uh, you know, there are decisions that come down from the top, but really a lot of autonomy is given to each different department and unit. Lots of benefits to that but also a lot of drawbacks, one of which is, you know, we use like five different project management things uh, and there's no sort of, it's like totally, it's just like Tower of Babel. As you said, there's just like so many different things that we're using. Um, And unless there's some sort of technological layer that can be built on top, which we've been thinking about, but I don't think it'll come for a while until AI gets a lot better. Uh, It's just like, it's totally like insane. And so they've hired me as a knowledge management person, but I'm only one person. And like to try to sway the whole organization to get on one standard seems like, and that's just one part of my job. There's like five other parts of the job that are all on this like giant scheme. The other one is like actually organizing our Notion Knowledge Lake database type of thing. Um, and, And like actually going through and organizing that, archiving it, making sure that everything is relevant in there. Um, and it's just like, these are like such huge jobs and I'm kind of overwhelmed a little bit. Cause it's like, there's, it is, and as you said, knowledge management is this thing that a lot of people are, don't really know what it is. So it's like hard to understand uh, how it benefits and what's the value of it and stuff like that. And so it's just like really insane that there's just like so much work and also nobody understands the work. Um, I would these, say, oh, yeah, go I
1: mean, just on the face of it, I would say, first of all, I would say most knowledge resource uh, I call them knowledge resources. Knowledge resource units are under under uh, resourced yeah. themselves, yeah, because their value is uncertain. Companies, and not a single year company or any company, yeah. even my clients, out, you know, they say, well, well, we'll try it out. We'll put a guy in there, a gal in there, yeah. and we've got this list of things. But the things you just mentioned, the two of them are completely different because one of them is. To use the analogy I just used, is inward facing, like indexing and stuff like that. That's a certain, I mean, in my experience, a certain kind of skills and really a certain kind of personality. Yeah. Um, on the execution and tactical side, the other thing of going out and building consensus and getting people is a very what you know we call political. It's very, um, involves peer to peer networking and schmoozing and you know political skills, armed. Arm twisting we used to call it in the old days, but you know, pers- friendly persuasion, that kind of thing. And I think what a lot of it is is persuading, is is showing people the value. Uh, I'm 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 really a believer. The way selling people on something happens is you show them the value, and they make the decision. You provide them the, the means to see what the the decision is, and um, but um. But but those those two jobs are, are very different. So I think when people are under resourced, the the, the the main one of the main reasons why KM fails is is under resourced. It's given an impossible set of tasks with a minimal set of resources, a token set of resources, and you go to it, guys. And then six months later, a year later, okay, well, what do we got? Well, you know, it's like okay, it's like go build a you know an airplane. And here's hammer. a soldering iron and a hammer. Yeah, go to it. There's some metal scrap metal over there. But but I think to be fair to those people, as I mentioned, they came up in an era when this wasn't even a real thing. I mean, I'm still not sure. A lot of them think of it as a real thing. So it's not really a real thing. It's just kind of a cool idea. Mm-hmm. And we, we can experiment with it. And we don't really, but but resourcing it well is a key thing. And the part of the cost, and I go into the cost and benefit a lot because Cost and benefit seems very clear, but it's not because the cost, both the costs and the benefits have themselves have tangible economic aspects and intangible aspects that can't really be measured at all, can only be measured imprecisely, if at all. Um, The value of... Just to pick the example you mentioned, the value of having, you know, my standard versus your standard. I mean, the, the value of having, and I'll just spin this for a second without having thought about it. The value of having a, a central set of resources that everybody agrees to use is, um, it, you know, for example, a help desk can be set up if if there are enough people using it. It is a critical mass issue. If there's a critical mass using a certain technology, then you can ha- hire a resource or some, get some agreement with a developer or whatever, for technical support and additional benefits, as you know, most software is not just a product. There, it's like a, a relationship. I think with a developer and with my music gear here, everything mm-hmm. I just bought a, a, a machine back here that was made in very limited quantities. But you know, i what I, the reason why I was attracted to it was because I knew there was a community of people that were interested yeah. in it. Yeah. A lot of what I learned here in the studio, I apply to to business, and I think it goes back and forth. But it's that. That community of practice, as they call it now, but the networks and the relationships, I think, are terribly important. So if you had a critical mass of people using a certain technology, that maybe it's not my favorite technology and my technology is 20% better or whatever. But, you know, the value of a community within an enterprise using the same technology is great because you can answer questions about it. You can do training about it. You can cross... um Sometimes do data sharing and and that kind of thing. It just their their values to scale mm-hmm. uh, over over just doing your own thing. I, I think there's a great benefit in doing your own thing. So it's a it's a balancing act. It's a danger. You don't want to take like the Russian army seem to the, the Ukrainians seem to be doing better against the Russian army because they're very network centric and they're very you know local decisions. And the Russians are very Moscow said it. Putin said it. They're very hierarchical. But, you know, you can adapt. I mean, I am I was interested in Stanley McChrystal, who, who trained, who, who ran the troops in Afghanistan, U.S. troops, came in. He wrote a book called Team of Teams, but it's about when he came in from West Point. He was trained at West Point, very command and control, you know, yes, sir, no, sir, all the way down the line. Mm-hmm. And he came to Afghanistan and he said, it didn't work like that at all. Mm-hmm. He said, I realized I was fighting a hierarchical battle against a networked opponent. And he he learned And team of teams is about the concept of building network concepts into warfare. But you, you gotta, you know, when in Rome, you gotta do as the Romans do. If you're, so it's a, it's a balance, I think, between the old fashioned schools that I was trained in at Yale School of Management, the hierarchy and modern management. It's really more about networks, teams, coalitions, much more uh, fluid and flexible. But that's a positive when you're dealing with a business environment that's very fast moving, but it's a negative in terms of applying some of the old models. Some of the old models don't work as well. Mm-hmm. And some of the new models are sort of in development. They're kind of, we're kind yeah. of developing them yeah. in real time as we go, when we're going 70 miles an hour, we're trying, we're trying to fix the models at the same time sometimes.
0: Yeah. Okay, so let's do, take five more minutes and talk about this kind of information. Uh, part of the reason I, I reached out was I, I I was doing Google searches and then I uh, found, um, uh, uh, what was his name? Ambient Findability. By Morville, Peter Morville, um, mm-hmm. and, he, and and he was wrote this book that you know two thousand six talking about uh, Google and like all these changes that were going on because we had just moved from this like non-searchable to now a searchable thing. We've got this searchable thing. Uh, and it, so everything needs to be findable. But how do you make things findable? It's totally a very, very complex job because language is very, um, uh, not. it's very messy. It's not like this very clear thing. It mess, it's super messy. People use different language for the same thing. Most of our search terms are based off of language. Uh, and now we've got this organizational problem that, you know, everybody's training on Google. Uh, and now we don't have a Google for business and like, it just, it's like, how do you find it? And I'm noticing that the same problem that I, that we have at the organization, there's almost no information online either about how to make things searchable and findable within businesses. Um, so I imagine that you have some, some interesting thoughts on this whole general thing, but what's, what are your thoughts on, on finding things that you need to do your job that are almost impossible to find?
1: I mean, Peter is an expert. I've heard him talk. He wrote the book, and I have it somewhere on my shelf. One of his books on findability and enterprise search is not a f- thing that I'm an expert in. Mm-hmm. I mean, I realize that it's a very important issue, but I realize it's changing a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, but 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 what I found using my knowledge value chain model, I found with a client that what the knowledge management people were sort of – historically had the role of finding and sourcing data mm. for people. And what I went around I one of the things I do and typically in a company is I interview the users mm. uh, the, who are and the sponsors and, and I say, what do you need? What are you getting? What do you not need? And what I found in that case, I think it's probably representative. Mm. I've seen it in other cases too, but is that uh they didn't need, because of Google, didn't mm. need ground level searching to be done they they could do that themselves mm. and but what they did need was some assistance in doing that like some um curation a little bit of uh, quality control like what are the really good sites to search and what are they not they, they need more education and coaching up the knowledge value chain from the basic level so i think it's a question of finding what you have i mean i always think Everything I do comes back to the first the first question is, what do we got, and what do we need? Mm. So, what do we got? It's the mm. basic question is what resources do we have? I mean, mm. getting back to the issue of what knowledge management people do. Well, sometimes not they don't even know. I've challenged knowledge management people. so what do you what do you got? What do you got in that in that company? What databases, what people, you know, well, just give me a a, a a ground floor picture of what you have right now, and then we'll look at where you need to go and what you need to get there. But sometimes that's not so easy because that's not an ongoing thing. As I mentioned, it's all off balance sheet, and sometimes they're not really prepared for the question. Mm. Um, so, but I think the, I've seen some speculation in that. This question of what do we have could be answered. I think AI, the, the promise of generative AI, may be. And I haven't seen. I've seen it speculated. I haven't seen demonstrations. It's not so much training on the internet, which seems to be, according to my test, just complete nonsense that comes out of it. But if you could train on an
0: enterprise-owned
1: yeah. own data, a clean data set, which you know is your enterprise, or let's say not clean, but let's an enterprise's own data. And then what you may find, I saw one person, it wasn't my idea, but I think it's probably right, is if we get to the point where we can train on our set of data within our company, within our enterprise, just our data, we may find that there's conflicting data that there's, uh, you know, versioning, obviously is a big problem. What's the current version of something or whatever. I, I ran a workshop at last year's KM World when I was talking about the strategic changes out there, what we were talking about earlier and how knowledge can uh, it should be impacted and should be in the process of renewing itself constantly. What I found was, and I had about a dozen people and they were from pretty high powered companies that I won't name here, but hmm. they didn't have that. Issue. They weren't even at that stage yet. They had, that was what I call the vertical dynamics problem. They had a horizontal dynamics problem. How do we just make sure stuff is current information? You know, for example, sometimes is is corporate policy. So how do we make sure we have the current version that's been improved by the legal department and the current sign offs and permissions and all that stuff? So it's a huge problem that um, I know some of the questions. I don't really know the answers, but I'm told that AI may have some solutions uh to that but but I'd say the short-term uh, answer is find out what you've got mm-hmm. and the short-term answer to that I always start with talking to people the, the the best the smartest people in the world are not the people that know everything the people who knows mm-hmm. who who know who knows mm-hmm. so I'm a big believer in finding the smartest people you don't have to tell them they're the smartest people yeah. although some companies do have experts yeah. and all that but sometimes that backfires but um but, but find the Find this, you know, find the people. It's all find the people that know what it is and figure out what you've got up front and then see where you go from there.
0: Very cool. Awesome. Well, how can my uh, listeners find out more about you and find out more about what you're working on?
1: I'd be delighted to keep in touch with your listeners. I'm at timwoodpowell.com. That's my uh, personal blog. Uh, my company is the Knowledge Agency, KnowledgeAgency.com. Um, My book um, is called The Value of Knowledge, and if you look on Amazon, there's a fat chapter, most of a chapter, Mm. you can download free, and I'd love to hear from you um, directly. Just contact me over LinkedIn or whatever, oh, and follow me on LinkedIn, Uh, and then ping me about any questions you have or problems you have or just to talk. This is really just very interesting, and I really appreciate your sharing insights about your problems and challenges. I, I love doing this, frankly.
0: Cool. Thank you, Tim. Yeah. yeah. Thank you for listening. And I hope you enjoyed this episode. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Stuart Alsop III. Also, don't forget to subscribe on Spotify or iTunes for every weekly episode that I publish on Monday mornings. Hope you have a great day.